like for you to open once again, if you don't mind, to Psalms 32. Psalms 32. I love this psalm. It's rich in its content, and I especially love verse 8. But last week, I talked about our sin, its effect, and the blessing of its remedy. And I want to go back and just add a few things to that that we didn't really spend enough time on last week. I believe this. I believe the biggest issue in life, the biggest problem we all have, no exceptions, is sin. It comes in so many different sizes and packages. It comes in so many ways, but it always does the same thing. It separates you from God. And when it does, in verse 3 and 4, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I think those two verses describe what sin does to a person. Sometimes we view our wrongs, our weaknesses, and our failings our lack of desire to do things God's way or to be what God specifically says. We sort of veer a little bit to the left or to the right of that or we give ourselves a lot of leverage. And, and when we don't do it right, when we don't do exactly what God says or we do a little gossiping or a little wrongdoing, whatever it is, uh, we dismiss that little bitty wrongdoing as sufficient enough for God to withdraw his hand from us or to weight us down or for our moisture to be turned into the drought of summer. It's a way of saying that the things are drying up. And yet, I believe churches are full of people who really don't deal with their sin. They kept silent, as he said in verse, verse 3, it's not anything I have to go confess and deal with. It's just, it's not a big deal. Or we say things like, well, everybody, I mean, who's perfect? Everybody does it. I mean, you can't always do what's right. I mean, nobody's that right. And so instead of us being concerned about hearing what God said, but then doing something a little different than what God said, we sort of let it go. Our silence, our lack of confession, or our lack of dealing with some things. And we just let things ride. And then we realize we're getting a little bit disturbed by what we hear because it's not working. You hear all this stuff about blessings and goodness, and I know God tests us, and I know there's trials. I'm not talking about that. When continually, year after year or month after month, there's a, there's a kind of spiritual depression. The giddy-up and go is not there anymore. The zeal and excitement you have known in the past seems to wane. You get very complacent. You start making compromises. You start uh, backing away from things you used to do a lot, like pray. You just sort of let things slide. Well, that becomes a sin because he that knows not to do that but does it anyway to that person, it is sin. And what that sin does, it's kind of like God said, well, now I've told you what is right. I've told you several times what is right. And you keep insisting on uh, hearing what I say, but taking for granted that I won't do anything about it. So what I'm going to do, I'm not going to just smash you and make sickness and disease and poverty come up, come up on you. 
I'm just not going to bless you. You're going to live in this life trying to manufacture a blessing. You're not going to get one. That's what sin does to us. That's the way it weights us down. That's what it does. See, a man who's blessed, the first two verses said, a man who's blessed in the eyes of God, a man who's blessed is one who's whose transgressions are gone, his sins been forgiven, his iniquities have, uh, have been set aside, and in his spirit there is no guile and so forth. Because a blessed man is very careful about the temperature of sin, you might say, of being sensitive to things that are wrong. You hear, you hear people say things they shouldn't say, and you go, that's not right. On the news the other night, 170 million Americans are going to be involved in Halloween. That's almost half the population of this country. Seven billion dollars spent on the devil. It's not funny. I mean, you can't say, oh, everybody said that. It's really not funny. It's like, this is how big and rampant deception is and what it can do to people who practice this stuff but don't see any dramatic falling out with God over it. It's just life as usual. And I think so many people in the church have learned to live with sin, have learned to live with despair and frailties and futilities and lack of, and it's been so long since anything has happened, we don't even expect it to happen anymore. When God says he's a miracle-working God, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what sin does to people. That's how it, that's how it waits people down. Or as he said in that one verse, verse four, his hand was heavy upon me. You just waited. You can't get up. You can't get out of this hole because the way you get out of it, we said last week, is you have to, you have to repent. Now, let me go back to a word that we mentioned last week, even though you've heard about it again. Allow me to digress a little longer about it. It's the word grace. It's grace. And think of it like this. All of us in this room, when we miss it, when we miss the mark and we sin, we all deserve the punishment of sin. And God, who is just and right and fair, has every right in this world with every man who's ever sinned to judge them. And the, and the penalty of sin, the wages of sin, is death, isn't it? It doesn't say big sins. It just says the wages of sin, S-I-N. What you get when you do things the devil's way is death. And God has every right for all of us who have many times ignored what was said, even though we keep hearing it and we keep hearing it, every now and then we still do it wrong. And God had every right in this world to judge us right then. He could. And if he did, he's righteous. He would be altogether right and I'm altogether wrong. Now, the mentality of this hour is, well, come on, surely. I mean, after all, that's the way we, we're learning to think in the last days with this antichrist spirit. God may be what he says to be, but he won't do what he said he would do. There's this indifference that permeates so many people's thinking. It's not like God is my great need. God is just somebody up there who doesn't care. You didn't learn things like that from the Bible. I don't know of anybody that would teach that, but that kind of stuff happens. But the God we're talking about tonight, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one who looks at us as sinners and says, I don't want to judge all of you. 
What if I told you that God, rather than judge you, would rather redeem you? That even though we have been vile and indifferent, unclean, and nasty and filthy in a lot of ways, he still doesn't want to judge us. He has a plan. He has a way by which he can deal with us lovingly and righteously. Now, that plan, when it's dispersed, when God begins to do what only God can do to deliver us and remedy our sinfulness and our sin and our sin attitude, when God begins to do what he does, it's called grace because there is nothing in us that commends it. None of us deserve grace. None of us can cause God to give it. All we like sheep had gone astray. There wasn't a righteous soul here, not one. Then why did anybody get saved? Because God wanted to save. He could not just save you without the proper things being done for salvation to be a reality. So he showed us in the law what the sacrifices were and what they were all about. And when you brought a certain sacrifice to the, to the priest at the temple, then there was a certain kind of procedure you went through, you laid hands on it, sacrificed the animal, and God would consider you to be delivered from that sin. But man, you weren't really delivered from it, but you were acknowledging it. People were constantly acknowledging their sin. Every year, Day of Atonement, the sins for everybody was taken care of by the high priests. And the Holy of Holies and the scapegoat that was sent away were constantly reminded of our sinfulness. Isaiah said that's what separates us from God so that, he won't, so that he won't hear. Our iniquities and our sins is what causes God to turn his back on us. But God does things to remedy that. And what he does to remedy that it's called grace. God gives you something you cannot otherwise get. That conviction you had about your sin last night, last week, last year. That, so to speak, tapping on your spirit during a service when you really saw something you'd never quite seen before and it greatly disturbed you to the point of tears because you saw how wretched and how easily you were so wretched that you were. And maybe like for some of us, I can still remember, it, it, it really bothered me. I didn't want everybody else to know that it bothered me because I was just in church. I mean, after all, this is only church. But something was said, a little a sentence, a word that connected with a sign I saw on the highway with a, with a conversation I had today. All these things suddenly connect, and I saw things I'd never seen before. God works in mysterious ways. I begin to see my sin because God, by his grace, puts all these things together. And this is what it does. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7. This is what it does. When God puts his gracious work together in your life, it's to bring it to this head. Now, Paul was speaking here. If you notice in the text here, the verse before, verse 10. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse uh, 9, Paul was speaking about, you know, well, they said, Paul, you, you preach hard, Paul. I mean, you know, what you say is just too hard. Verse, verse 9, he said, now, Paul said, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, not that I just you all were all tore up after hearing me speak 
or sorry is a better word, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that is, it was God's doing, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Verse 10, for godly sorrow, this is the sorrow that God alone can bring. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. There is no other way to get it. It is something God does. We saw those other verses last week. For godly sorrow worketh repentance. Let me read for you from two different translations here about that verse. One says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. A repentance that is not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world finally produces death. In other words, when God causes you to repent and turn away from your sins and your lifestyle and the wickedness you now see, while you were sorry and you were just tore up about it, you will never regret that. You will never look back in five years, 10 years, 50 years at that hour that God broke your heart and regret that your heart was ever broken. You will rejoice that godly sorrow is what caused you to have to keep blowing your nose and cry out to God in tears of sorrow. Oh, God, I am sorry. Something from the deepest recesses of your heart, it rises up. It cannot be stopped because God has chosen a particular day to bring you to him. This is it. And he exercises on his grace upon you to cause an effect in you that he desired from the foundation of the world. And you responded because you had to. You were one of his people. God said, I'm saving you tonight. I'm saving you today. And when he did that, you just broke down. You cried. You know why you cried? Because you were so sorry. You know, you couldn't go back and undo all those sins in your life. You, all you could do was, I am so sorry. Because you never saw yourself like you saw yourself when God broke your heart. And God said, it was a sorrow which worketh repentance unto salvation. In this way, God begins your salvation. This is how it starts. It doesn't start by joining church or getting baptized in the water. It doesn't start by going to catechism or any other kism. It starts because God's work in your life caused great sorrow to come in your life. It produced repentance, a turning away from what you were, hating what you did, and you turn away from it with the intention of never going back to it ever again. Another translation. For the grief, according to God, works repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the grief of the world works out death. How many of you know the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men? But that man can by, if he... If he's not elect, he can resist God. That is, you can frustrate the grace of God. I could say tonight, for example, what if God chose tonight to cause everybody in here to be aware of your sins? To be keenly aware that you're a sinner. That you're a sinner who belongs to a church. 
You go to meetings every week and you're a sinner. You've never given up your sins. You do not even try to stop sinning. You just sin, but you go to church. But everybody in the whole room was made keenly aware tonight that you're a sinner. Is it not possible that a bunch of people could resist repentance? But who can't and who wouldn't? Those whom God gives repentance to. Being sorry for your sins does not mean you'll repent of it. You may feel bad. There's a word for that, which is referred to as repentance. It's just simply regret for what you did or what you said or how you've lived. But you don't turn away from it. You stay that way. But true repentance, that deep working thing in your heart that causes you to be the 20 years from now, you still turned away from your sins. You're not up and down, up and down, up and down. Well, I try, well, I can't, well, I'm not okay. No, sir, what we're talking about stays with you the rest of your life. It, you'll never regret it. Now, back to where I was a while ago. What is it about God? What a wonderful question. What is it about God that makes him, causes him, nothing makes him, but causes him to grant Salvation through repentance to people, lost, sinful people. We know it comes by grace, but what is the biblical word for this compelling salvation to be given? It's mercy. Mercy. He said the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men everywhere. That's in Titus 2. Would you turn to Titus 3? And beginning at verse 3, but we ourselves are also sometimes, there was a time in our life and we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived, serving different kinds of lusts and pleasures, living in hatred and envy. We were hateful, hating one another, but this is what repentance does, but after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to what? His mercy, he saved us. Notice two words in verses four and five. Kindness. Do you see the word kindness? But according to his kindness? Is God kind? You think about it. Why would he be kind? Seeing how we lived and Look at, look at how many people were put in jail as murderers. I mean, all kinds of heinous sins. And God saved people like that. Look at the Apostle Paul. He was on his way up to Damascus to capture Christians, drag them out of the house, and put them in jail and cause some of them to be killed. He had done it before. I mean, he was the cause of a lot of despair and, and grief and sorrowful families and separation of men is his wife and murder and killing Paul. I mean, Paul was why he said, I am the chief of sinners. I am the least of all saints. I am the least of the apostles. Those three things he said. Why would he say that? He's just trying to boast of how humble he was. No, he remembered his life the way he was and that one day for no good reason other than something foreordained, he was 
knocked down on the road to Damascus, heard a voice, became blinded. And God spoke to another man named Ananias and told him to go pray for him. He said, pray for him? He's the worst, he's the worst enemy we have. Everybody fears Saul of Tarsus because he, he wants to get rid of all Christians. Sound like today in some places in this world. And yet God said he is a chosen vessel. Now there's hope for me. Because I never did that. I've never done anything like that. But what I did was sin. And sin is sin. And he struck him down and raised him up. And he's, he's kind. And not only that, but God is merciful. We're told several times in the scripture. There's not time tonight to go through all this. But I looked at several scriptures just in the last couple of weeks on how we should imitate God's mercy. If we do not show mercy to others, the Bible says he will no longer show mercy to us. And look at all the people that turn us off and then we just get ticked off at. And the Bible said if you were worse than them in the eyes of God. And he showed mercy to you. Now, if you can't show mercy to those kind of people, then no more mercy will be shown to you. I want you to love other people the same way I've loved you. How did he love us? Were we desirable, loving? No. Why did he love us? He is rich in mercy. I think if there's one thing in this life as Christians, one message that should permeate our thinking as Christians more than any other, it's this. I love the faith, the faith message and overcoming the deeper life, but there's one thing that comes first. And that's the fact that God lovingly, mercifully, and graciously has saved you. That your name is written in the Lamb's book of life because of what he did, not because of what you did. And if there's one thing you should rejoice in in this life, it's that, that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because if it's not there, all this other stuff is nothing more than ritual. Just ritual. But he saved us, and he saved us because he is kind and merciful. Listen to what Paul wrote. You know this well too in Ephesians 1 and verse 7 said, In whom we have redemption. Remember that? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We deserve nothing but judgment. Look at all of our ancestors. I look at people that I've known in my family, my family tree. I don't know very many. If it may be, I don't know if I could count on one hand those that lived a Christian life or even confessed Christ. They were all religious. They all sat in meetings. I don't think nothing was ever said that determined their life, that never turned them around. And yet I'm sure there were people in meetings they were in. Somebody surely got saved. And they probably thought he was, you know, overdoing it. They thought I was a fanatic because I got saved. Because I didn't do the things I used to do. I became different. My life now was a testimony of what they were doing against what they were doing. But what is it that brought about your repentance? Well, we've said mercy, goodness, grace. Let me ask you a question. Did you get what you deserved? Now, I want you to follow me. You're going to have to... Follow me here and turn into all these verses because I want you to see these verses, several verses, five or six, 
where the scripture points out how tolerant and long-suffering God is. To keep from having to judge you when you deserve judgment, God prolonged it, sent somebody else to preach to you, you know this, and you rejected that, and he sent somebody else to preach to you. Now, he says that, you know, he, he will not always be merciful, but think of all the times we got stirred up or how many times God has spoken about the same thing to us. We kind of, I don't know about that. And yet he repeats it again. Is he trying to tell us something? There comes a day in which it's over. It's done. No more. Just like the day of the ark, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He preached to the same people. The world wasn't very big to travel in those days, but he preached to the same people for 120 years. 120 years. He was called a preacher of righteousness. And they stood there with their minds filled with what he said until the day the door was shut on the ark. It was over. They had taxed his tolerance and long-suffering, and then he said, it is enough. You'll never again be convicted. You'll never again weep about your sins. You'll never feel bad about it. You're done. I believe that's the worst sentence that any man could ever experience in this life. But I want you to turn to Psalm 103. You're going to go to Psalm 103, then you're going to find Ezra and Nehemiah, which is to the left of the Psalms. You knew that. Psalm 103 and verse 10. Someday they'll invent a Bible, a paper one. But just open up to these verses. You won't have to waste so much time. I'm not going to use a tablet. I saw a guy doing that the other day. He had one of those uh, new uh, iPads. Is that right? And he, but he was he was really geeky. And he could, and he was there. And they, now once you turn to this, and he was already there. And I thought that'd be nice. But I I'm still in the paper. But Psalm 103 and verse 10. Listen to this. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Is that true? Well, it has to be true. What does it mean? Did you deserve a whole lot worse than what you got? Well, of course you did, but he, why didn't he deal with you according to your sins? Because he loves mercy more than he loves judgment. Amen. Listen to this, verse, verse 11. For as a heaven is higher above the earth, and as so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. What a marvelous word in the Bible, mercy. Mercy. It's also called loving kindness. It's an attribute of God whereby he shows pity to sinners and to the suffering to relieve them of it. In this case, God, who would rather bless than judge, but cannot bless sinners unless sinners respond, that is to change their course of their life, gives you his word, sends people brings you to places that you didn't deserve to be brought, makes you hear things that wasn't even in your program. He makes you hear it. He makes you see things. 
the dream you had, the vision you had. It's all about getting saved. And he does that for one reason. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know why? Because God so loved the world that he gave Christ his only begotten son for our sins so that we could be saved. This is the main message of Christianity. Christ, Christ came to save sinners. And we were, and we have been redeemed. Look in Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9 and verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, these are the people that came back from the Babylonian captivity. And Nehemiah was simply acknowledging to God, you are so much, you are so good. We are so bad. We deserved a whole lot worse than what we got. That's what he said. And after all that has come upon us for our great evil, for our evil deeds, and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. They were brought across from Babylon or Iraq straight across to Israel. They were back in their broken down homeland with weeds and this grown up and grown over ugly place. And there's a temple all broken down and the walls are broken down. And they came back to, re, to rebuild it. And Nehemiah sitting there thinking, you know, Lord, we, we read about our forefathers and how they sinned against you. And you warned them and you warned them and you warned them. And like for over a hundred years, you warned them. You sent prophets. The prophets told them, we stoned the prophets. They killed the prophets and they kept, God kept sending them. Finally, he said, all right. That's it. And here came the Babylonians, and they captured them and drug them away and treated them very, very harshly, more so than the Bible describes. And yet for all of that, they read in the Scripture that God had marked them out to return to their homeland, and they finally he came back. Some of them did. A bunch of them did. Nehemiah and Ezra did. And they're there, and he's saying, Lord, we don't deserve this. We don't have much. We have the favor of the king, but we're back in our homeland. We should, have, we should have been killed and died the way we acted. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 31. These are the words of godly men. Godly men. I was reading this oh, a couple, three weeks ago when I was reading through Nehemiah. I came across this and I thought, you know, this was a very God-fearing godly man. He was God's man. And he made sure they all heard what God had to say about things. This was his prayer. He said, nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. God is merciful. And God is gracious to us also because he's God. The book of Job, the book of Job, you don't have to turn to this, chapter 11 and verse 6 says, Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. 
God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. You read about others in the Bible who apparently were not marked out for salvation. They were consumed in their sins. They would never find their way out of it. They died in despair in their sins, and yet here's these who were recipients of mercy and grace. And like it should be, all they could say was, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for my salvation. Thank you for your kindness and your grace and your mercy. You have forgiven me of such bad things. And I am yours and you have made me yours. And I praise God. That's what a thankful heart. It comes, that's what the last thing I was going to say tonight was that. We become thankful people. One of the easiest things that we can do is to, is to surrender our hearts and our wills to God, bow our heads in thanksgiving and honor God. Look what he did for you. Look why he did it. Because he's merciful. Before you were born, before there was ever a world for you to be born in, he recorded your name and marked a day in your life he was going to save you. And didn't miss the mark. He didn't forget you because he graves you on the palm of his hand. How could he forget you? We're talking about who our God is tonight, who we're, who we're serving. Our sins separated us from God. Its effect was devastating. It brought death into our life, but the deliverance and the blessing. Turn to Lamentations. That's right after Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22. We sing this song. It is of the Lord's mercies that what? Then why are we not consumed? I would ask you, why then are you not consumed? Why, does, why is not the grief of this daily affair and all the corruption in the world and all the mess that it brings into people's lives until they get confused and, and, and disheartened and, I, and, you know, and then people get mean? You know what they do after that? They turn to drugs. Drugs. There's pills today for everything. If a kid talks out of turn in class, there's a pill for that. I got pills you can't even talk about in church today. There's pills for everything in this age. There's never been an age more corrupt than this one. And yet in the midst of all the filth, God is saving people. Because they know there's something more. There's got to be a way I can get out of this. This is a hole that I'm in. And then God speaks to them and breaks their heart. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions, they fail not. And God turns it on you when he directs that thing upon you. Let me tell you something. It's going to work. It is going to work. Now, we don't know that where we could say, oh, well, I'm just, you know, when God gets ready, he'll just point that whatever he's talking about on, on me and I'll get saved. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't even know if all you know is that that's what God does. Will he do it to you? Will that happen for you? Anybody can join church. Anybody can go to church and learn the songs. 
But I've been here too long. I've been in this world too long myself to know that there's a lot of people who talk about what's right, but they don't live what's, what's right. Something had never clicked in their life. I know God has spoken about it. I know God has dealt with them about it, but something was left out. Not from God's side. I don't know what it is. I think I do, but I'd rather not say. Look at Psalms 119. Go to the middle of your Bible. Psalms 119 and verse 124. Make this your prayer tonight. Deal with me, Lord. Deal with me how? Well, as psalmist said, deal with me according to thy mercy and teach me thy statutes. Is this how a forgiven and taught person prays? A person who has been taught and forgiven or forgiven and then taught, who learns the ways of God, is this how he prays? Is he one that sees, even though I'm in this flesh, and even though, I think it happened again tonight on the way to church, on, on the way to the meeting, even though you're told when you get to, at the traffic light you're not supposed to holler at the person in front of you, I think I did tonight. People don't know how to drive. I'm the only one in the whole world knows how to drive. I was just thinking, you know, when you pull up, if the light is red, you don't have to stay back here. Pull out in the intersection. Because that way, when the light turns, you, you're the only one, you're the only one, when the light changes, you can turn. They don't run over you because they turn on yellow. Just get on out of the way. I remember one time sitting back there, at, sitting back there, sitting back there at the, uh, at my, I was next in, in line. I looked, I said, go, 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 go. Come on, go. Oh, man. So the light turned red. I'm thinking, that's great. Good. <laughs> and the light turns green. I'm thinking, lady, just pull out, or man, hey, young man, pull out in the middle of the intersection. Just pull out there and wait. Don't get in front of a car that go that way, but get out there where, when it's your turn, uh-uh, that's too easy. Anybody could do that. <laughs> now, see, there's nothing wrong with the instruction. <laughs> but there's everything wrong with the attitude. It's that attitude. I mean, that's what, that's what the problem is. It's that attitude. And, and, you know, I know better than that. I do. I'm supposed to sit there and say... Because when I pull out there, somebody in the back of me said, what's wrong with that dumb guy? He's out in me. You're going to get run over out there. The way the light changes, and you'll see. But uh, attitude. Now, let me ask you something. <laughs> Is a bad attitude sin? Is that enough cause for God to deal with me about something? Could it be that a man does like that and doesn't repent, keeps silent? Could he have a bad day? No seeming response from God about anything. He asks God for things, doesn't hear anything. Could it be because of that attitude back at that traffic light? Or in a grocery store? Now we're all guilty. All you, you know. That cart. Mm, 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 mm. Could it be? 
course it could. God is never leaving us alone. The mercy that drug you out of a sinful state is the same mercy and grace that continually exercises itself to you to refine you and to change you from the way you were to the way he wants you to be. You're no longer fashioned according to the world, but you begin to change. You don't need pills for everything anymore. You walk it out. Like I heard a lady say on the radio this morning, Kids today uh, don't even know what, uh, they don't know what difficulty is about. The first time there's a pain, they look for a pill. The school's giving pills. If somebody falls asleep during class, he's got ABC and, and, and he, needs to, uh, he needs a pill. Like another caller called in and said, no, he needs a whipping. <laughs> well, the Bible talks about the blueness of a wound drives away evil. Are you in Psalm 119, verse 124? Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy and teach me thy statutes. One more. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north. That would have been Israel. And say, return thou backsliding Israel. They were backslidden when he said this. Say unto the Lord, I will not. Say unto the Lord, saith the Lord, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord thy God, and has scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. You have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. I don't know how many times the book of Jeremiah uses the word obey. I think it uses obey more than any other book in the Bible, I think. That was the great problem with Israel to the north and with Judah to the south, the two tribes and ten tribes. They just wouldn't listen. They would listen, but they wouldn't do. And God told me, he said, you better obey my voice year after year after year. And here came the prophets, Jeremiah up in the north. You better stop. You better stop. And they hated him for it. They hated him for it. And then one day God says, okay, then you'll have what you want. You want to worship under every green tree or that is on these hillsides and all these idols and statutes. You want to give all your devotion to the things of this world and make your life revolve around that. Go ahead. Because disaster is coming. One day you'll wish you hadn't, but it'll be too late, just like the door on the ark. It'll be, once it shuts, it's over. God's mercy has been extended again and again and again, but people just leave it alone. They leave it alone. Turn to Luke 15. The one, the one story and one picture in the Bible that puts all of this together, God's attitude and our rank sinfulness, Luke chapter 15. If you're not familiar with this story, then you're new in the Lord. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. A certain man had two sons. You know the story now. And the youngest of these sons wanted his inheritance. We spoke of that last week. And the father gave it to him. And then the scripture says he went off and squandered all of the inheritance his father worked hard to get and used good business sense and had money saved up and money for his kid, and the kid wanted it now, so he gave it to him now. 
There was no IRS then, so he gave it to him now. And he went off like so many young folks would do today without regard for tomorrow. They just had a good time today. I mean, I got my dancing shoes on. Where can I go dancing? Well, everywhere you got money, there's somebody that said, come dance over here. Go to verse 17. He squandered all of his money, lost it all, got him a job feeding pigs in verse 16. Even desired to eat what those pigs were eating because he didn't have anything anymore. It's a picture of what sin does to people. This whole thing is about how sin makes you, you know, sin promotes you and then it takes its time. It dethrones you to depress you so you'll quit trying, give up, throw in the towel and just die. Die in your sins and face a certain judgment. This man, though, he said in verse 17, when he came to himself, would you believe with me that every man who is living like this guy lived was beside himself? Now, I wouldn't use the word crazy, but he wasn't in his right mind. It's never right to think the way he was thinking. It's never a good thing to think like that, to have this hedonistic pleasure attitude. It's not. And when he came to himself, when sensibility returned as an act of God upon him, this is how grace works. And he began to look at things differently than he ever did before. When God leaned on him that way, he saw how good it was where he came from, how many hired hands my father has. And he said in verse 18, I will arise. This is the beginning of repentance. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now, everybody that knew the boy and that was on the father's side knew what the boy said was right, except most of them probably wouldn't even let him come, come back home. You trashed the name of your father. You've lived with harlots, no doubt, and you've done all those kind of things. And having done all of that, now here you come crawling back home to your daddy. You've already got yours. Hit the road, Jack, as they would say. Be gone with you. But he said, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to plead with my father to take me back and let me be a servant. I'll live out in the barn with the other guys. You don't owe me anything. I've already got what best you could give me. I've already got it from that inheritance. And verse 20, here's, here's God. This is the picture that'll bring thanksgiving to your heart tonight. And while he was yet a long way off, coming home, his father saw him, and he had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. Why? Why? Why would the father do that to a lousy son like that? Why would a father treat a, a renegade boy as, as bad as he had been? Why would he treat him like that? Did the father know something better? Was the father living on a higher level than the boy? Could he see things that the boy could not see? The father no doubt looked for that son to come back. And he was coming back. The father saw him. And while the boy was walking, the father ran. Ran to the kid or the man, whatever he was, 
put his arms around the boy and kissed him. And the son said, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to be merry. That's how your heavenly father feels about you and me. That's how he feels about us. You were lost. And when he saw you coming back home that night in a meeting in your mother's lap, home, and ball game, wherever, where, at school, wherever you were, when you turned around from him, he was there and he greeted you. And there was a great chorus of elation in heaven. Remember the angels shout because of a sinner that came to the Lord? Heaven was beside itself, just great praise because another soul has come home to Jesus. This is the picture we see of mercy and grace, a loving father, not disregarding all the sins of his son. He was well aware of that, not approving of the way the boy lived, but willing to forgive the boy. I got my son back. Come back home. No, you're not going to be a servant. The blood that's in me is in you. Put a robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calves. Get the band out. We're going to play. And they did. That's the picture I want to leave you with tonight, that this is who we're serving. This is the kind of God who is kind to us and merciful and generous and loving. And what did he do when he brought his son back? He redeemed him. I'll leave you with this tonight. Forgiveness of your sins brings many blessings, two in particular. And back in Psalms 32 and verse 7, one in particular is preservation. He will preserve me from every evil work. The idea that God who saved you takes a great interest in every detail and aspect of your life from now on. Every step. God is measuring it. You know that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and God delights in his way. God doesn't delight in sin because when you walk the way he wants you to walk, you don't sin. He told a, told a person once, go and sin no more lest a worse thing come on you. The thing that came on them was because of sin. Oh, how the liberal church today can't stand that. But it's true. Go and sin no more lest a worse thing Come upon you, and he shall give his angels charge concerning you. Or concerning you, every day, think of this, every day concerning you, God gives charge to his angels. They're waiting on his, on his command. I want you to go and I want you to watch over Caleb. I don't want him to dash his foot against a stone, Psalm 91. No evil shall befall you. No plague come nigh your dwelling. He gives his angels charge over you, lest that he keep you in all your ways. How do I maintain this? Stay in touch with God. 
The only thing that can separate me from God is sin. The only thing that can separate me from God is sin. The only thing that can separate me from God is sin. The only thing that can separate me from God is sin. The only thing that can separate me from God is sin. The only thing that can separate me from God is sin. And the only thing that can separate me from God is sin. Say it any way you want to, it's the same thing. Because when that's gone, when that's out of the way, when you become aware of it, you have a greater desire to serve God than yourself. All these blessings. Because the first one is redemption. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And redemption includes so much, we could say a lot of different things, but redemption includes almost everything. Your protection, your supply, your healing, your health, deliverance from grief and sorrow and poverty, deliverance from it. You've been redeemed from it. That's why he said redeemed. I love to proclaim my redemption. I'm like a son who was lost down in New Orleans, and I came back home to my father, and he took me back in and restored me to where I should have stayed in the first place. I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's what that fatted calf they killed. There's a picture of that. I mean, a prodigal son came home and a calf died. But it was for his joy. And in closing, you've talked about sin, grace, repentance, forgiveness, fellowship with God, and heaven. One more thing, heaven. One more thing, allow me this. One more thing, heaven. Heaven. Think of this. When this life is over, the redeemed go to heaven. Heaven. A place that is being prepared for us that very soon the Lord is coming to get his own and take them to that place. Heaven. We shall reign and rule with him forever. Where he is, there we shall be also. And we shall see him. Listen to these, at these words in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 and 5. He says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're in the last time. I think tonight is just a, maybe one of the beginnings that God is revealing to us about a salvation that we have and that it's going to materialize in the last day in the reality, no longer by faith, but by sight. We'll see him and we will know him even as we're known. God be praised. Amen. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, bless your people. Keep us safe. Open our eyes and deliver us from evil. Let grace be not only profound, but abundance. May we never forget that it's mercy that singled us out for grace to find its way into our hearts. And for that, we are forever thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.